0: This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. From the Beauforts to Henry VII and Richard III, as well as the Pretenders, the history of England is strife with ups and downs. But the first Tudor king surely had his share of downs. Today, I invite author Nathan Amin to answer some of my burning questions. He'll explain what he believes happened to the princes in the tower and finally answer whether or not Henry VII was a usurper and was he a miser. I'm Rebecca Larson, host of the Tudors Dynasty podcast and owner of TudorsDynasty.com. Telling the stories of those who lived centuries before us is what I enjoy doing most. Whether it be a show on one subject or an interview with an author or historian, I'll bring you the tales of 16th century England. Before I get started today, I need to take a minute to thank Kara D for becoming a patron since last episode. Thank you, Kara. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash tutors and click become a patron. For as little as three dollars per month, you can show your support. Also, I am creating a free tutor course for those who are interested. I've been blown away at the response since nearly 1,000 people have already emailed me to get signed up for this. If you're interested, you can email me at tutorsweekly at gmail.com. And as an added incentive, if you become a patron, you will get early access to the course, the VIP treatment, since you've been so kind to support me and my podcasts. The course is set to begin in January with great topics being covered. Stay tuned for more information. And with that, let's get on with the interview with Nathan. Nathan, welcome to the show.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me, Rebecca.
0: Nathan, you are one of those people that I feel like I've known on social media for a lifetime, but we've never met in person. Um, but you do seem like the kind of person that I'd like to sit down and talk history and share a beer with. So my, my curiosity. Um, about your interest in history is probably the most common question you're always asked is what piqued your interests in history?
1: Um, I tend to always answer this question and it makes people laugh because I answer it with boredom um, And what I mean by that is many people studied history props through school onto university level um they seem to you know be real history geeks in the nicest way from young children um i don't think i was quite like that child myself um i wouldn't have said that i was a massive history geek as a child if anything it was probably geography and sports i loved them but where i'm from in south wales it's an area that's history everywhere where we turn um and the Welsh are always aware of their history, so I guess it's always been there in the background. But I got to my mid twenties, and suddenly your your social circle starts to dwindle as people perhaps you know start to get married, have children, uh, develop other interests, and I think you suddenly start to find your world shrinking a lot. And I it was at that point that I started to look around for. Things that knew, you know, that interested me now as someone in my mid-twenties, as opposed to carrying on the same interests I'd always had. Um, I suppose you could say, you you know, in a really, uh you know, almost like a elitist way, you've, you know, you've, you've found yourself, <laughs> I guess. Um And that's pretty much what happened. I started visiting the odd castles here and there in my spare time. Uh, checking out some RBs, and I think I'm somebody who naturally has quite an obsessive personality. As soon as something clicks in my mind, I'm all in, and that's slowly what happened with the history. I started to read one or two books, um, on the two days in, in specific, in specifically, and then when you're tying into being able to visit the actual locations where history happened very quickly. You're starting to almost build a chain link by link. And, in, you know, 10 years later, I'm, I'm still here. I'm still trying to build that chain longer because once you start, you know, there's no stopping with this subject. There's always something to learn and discover. Um So the long answer, there's a short answer rather there, is boredom.
0: I love that answer. I think that is so great. You know, it's very similar to me was when I was in school, uh, history was never interesting to me and I always blame that unfortunately on the teachers that I had that maybe they didn't, um, make it interesting for me or maybe it was the subjects that we were taught I didn't find interesting. And once I found the tutors, I'm the same as you. I'm, I'm all in now. It's, it's, it is an obsession. It's all I read. You know, I work at a bookstore during the week, and people are constantly asking me, Have you read this new book by so and so or this new book by so and so? And I go, No, haven't I told you I only read English history? <laughs> like, I don't veer from it. This is all I read. <laughs> I mean, the problem with
1: it was almost something similar with myself, but I couldn't really blame uh, the teacher in my school. It was more how the curriculum worked. When I was 16, because I always enjoyed history, um, I enjoyed geography. The problem was, was when I started school, I was one of them kind of, um, you know, those kids, you just seem to know everything about a particular thing and nobody knows why. And I was one of them with geography. Uh, at 11 years old, you could name me any country in the world and I'll be able to tell you their capital city their flag, I'd be able to draw you their flag. I was just, you know, one of those kids who knew everything about geography and was known as that kid all through school. Now, when you get to 16 in the UK and you start to study your GCSEs, um, things have probably changed many times since I was at school. But that particular year, the choice came down to you could either go on to study history or you could study geography. You couldn't do both. And if you could have done both, I certainly would have done both of them. But it was a straight-up choice, A or B. And I feel now I've perhaps pushed into doing geography by the school because I was known as this this child who knew everything about geography. Um And I think, you know, in hindsight, if I'd gone down the history route, then perhaps I would have gone on to study it heavily at, at A level and on to uh university and so on. So I've kind of taken a long path to going back to 16 years old and almost being able to make that choice again. And it's a shame because I liked history in school. I had great teachers. Uh, one teacher in particular, Mr. Knight, uh, and he sadly passed away a couple of years after I left school. So it would have been great to have been able to have these conversations with him now, um, because he was a very—he's one of those very excitable teachers—and I still feel a bit uh bad for myself almost uh and for him that i dropped the a 16 so you know it's almost like a school decision that I was taken out of my hands and it's yeah that, that's one of my regrets i think when i look back to school i wish they had let me take both of those subjects
0: it makes you wonder how things would be different today if they had
1: Exactly, yes. I mean, perhaps you would have ended up studying it um, at university and then moving on into an academic area. I mean, you you know, who knows? Who knows how life would have, would have turned out.
0: You had mentioned, um, when we first started talking here that you are from Wales and I'm very curious, can you speak Welsh?
1: Uh, I can get by in Welsh. Um, Wales is a, it's, it's a fascinating one because People have this idea uh, outside of Wales that Welsh is a dead language, nobody speaks it, and what's the point of it? But the truth is that 20% of Wales is uh, first language Welsh. Uh, if you were to speak to my grandmother, for example, uh, her natural inclination is to speak in Welsh, to think in Welsh. Uh, it's a living language for her every day. And where I grew up in South Wales, if you were to go into a shop in any of the local villages, they're gonna start speaking to you in Welsh automatically. You know, it's it's their language, no different to how English in England, you know, French in French in France, and so on. So this idea that people, um, no, 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 Welsh person can speak Welsh, which is often the the stereotype you get, is wrong. And with that said, regards to myself, where I grew up, you have to know some degree of welsh to get by i mean it's it, because you will go into a shop and people will start to speak to you in welsh first off so you almost learn it through osmosis kind of ways so if i went through, into a shop of my grandmother spoke to me fluent welsh i would understand everything they're saying but then respond in english and the problem there is a lot of the young, young younger generations in my in my age group, the let's say people between 25 and 45, we seem to have turned more towards speaking English in in a social situation. So you almost lose the practice of using the Welsh. So even though you understand it fluently, speaking it, is, you know, it's like exercise. You start to lose a little bit of the of the confidence and so on. Whereas the generation below us, I think there's a real heavy push now to get them to use Welsh outside of work, outside of school and in a social circle, so they're more confident and more comfortable using it every day. So it's it's a weird one. I can understand fluent Welsh, but I would respond in English. So I'm not sure whether I would fit in into the, the first language, the second language kind of scenarios.
0: Well, I would say it definitely um, must have helped you with your research on Henry Tudor.
1: Uh it, it does, yes. I mean, with regards to understanding the Welsh language, that's a little bit more complicated because medieval Welsh, just like medieval English, is on a whole different level of modern comprehension. You have to be a student of medie- medieval Welsh in itself rather than just being Welsh-speaking. But it certainly does help with the mindset, at least, of being able to put yourself into that 15th-century situation and try to understand what were the Welsh people of the day thinking, what was Henry thinking, whereas too often it's just been brushed under the carpet or just ignored when it's being looked at from an English aspect or even an American aspect or, or any. Body studying the subject, not Welsh, because you're not you haven't bought in, you haven't been brought up in the Welsh mindset of um looking at the world around you. So the language aspect possibly it hasn't helped me too much. Um, but certainly the mindset at least has, I think, or at least allowed me to give a fresh aspect to the study of Henry.
0: Well, you said you were surrounded by all of these historic buildings and places in Wales. I'm curious, what was the first place in Wales that you visited that was attached to Henry?
1: Um, it almost certainly would have been some something like Pembroke Castle and so on, like a child. Um, the, the, the 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 difference was, of course, I wouldn't have known that it would have been attached to Henry. Um, it would have just been. A local place we used to visit. Uh, there's a, there's a seaside town in South Wales called, called Tembe. And Tenby is quite well known, uh, in the UK for its, you know, its beaches and its, uh, little, little shops uh, and so on. And it's quite a popular seaside resort in the summer. So we visited there multiple times every summer as a child. And that would have been heavily associated with Henry and Jasper Tudor. Uh, in fact, Temby was where both the Tudor, uh, uncle and nephew, escaped from Wales in 1471 when they were being chased by the Yorkists. There's an argument that if they had not escaped from Temby, they both would have been put to death um at that time. Because they were, rightly or wrongly, regarded as, you know, potential, or Henry was, as a potential Lancastrian heir. And Edward IV was keen to mop up any rival claimants. And they escaped from Tembi in a small boat um, with, you know, barely any time to, to spare and escaped across to the sea. Now, every time I go to Tembi now, that is always the key thing I'm always aware of. Obviously, as a kid and as a teenager, I'm sure all I cared about was getting into the sea or getting onto the beach. Um, but it's those kind of things now that it's given me a new a new respect and, and a new vantage point for my life when I go back home because I'm learning new things about an area I'd always grown up on so as a child Temby for example would have been this place we went to go um to the sea with the family or down the beach and then as you get a bit older you go off Temby a little bit uh, I think when I speak to all my friends, we all felt the same, that when you learn that you can go to the, uh, you know, to some of the Spanish places or some of the uh, Cypriot places or the Greek places, Tembi all of a sudden doesn't seem that attractive when you're 18, 19 years old. You think it's boring, it's bland, the kind of place that's um, full of grandparents or families. Now, all of my friends now stay with their own young children, they think Tembe is one of the best places in the world. You know, they've almost rediscovered it as parents themselves. I am not a parent, but I have rediscovered my love for Tembi based on history. Um, so I'm normally, if anyone's ever in Tembi in the summer and you're walking past someone staring up at a, at a medieval city wall, whilst everybody else is walking past me with their surfboards, <laughs> that'll probably be me.
0: <laughs> that would be me too. I, I think um, to be surrounded by that much history would just be awe-inspiring. I always say when I finally get to travel to England, that the first thing is I, I'm just going to run up to an ancient building and touch it and start crying because it's so amazing what you have all around you. You're so, so fortunate.
1: It's quite, it's quite a funny scenario. I mean, I live in York now and I must have seen York Minster, one of the grandest buildings in the world so many times and I take it for granted uh, and I liken it I'm sure the same would be the, could be said for somebody living in New York um, you know they must walk past the Empire State Building see the Statue of Liberty so often it's just a thing it's no longer in, you know something that people come from all around the world to see and sometimes I get that way in York I take it for granted and I brought a friend up last year, and he had no interest in history, it just doesn't it's just not something um that, that phases him and I was going to be frustrated because he just couldn't accept how wonderful the Minster was he couldn't, it was just a building um, and then later in the night, we may have had one or two beers, perhaps <laughs> um, and I took him right up right up to the Minster up to it face to face, and I asked him to just look up And, you know, when you're that close, you know, we can argue maybe the hops had put him in a more accepting state of mind. But he looked up and for the first time, he could see his mind click. Wow. And then came the questions. I don't understand how they built it. How did they build it? How did they conceive such a structure? And I could see it in his mind. And it felt brilliant to finally get, you know, this is what teachers must go through almost on a day-to-day basis, when they could see something click in, in the mind of somebody that they're trying to, you know, get hooked on, on, on a subject. And it, it was brilliant. And before we knew it, out came his phone. He started taking pictures. He wanted pictures of me with it and him with it. And it, it was such a happy moment for me just to see somebody just, you know, their mind just click. Um, so, so, yeah, there is a danger, you know, which you don't have in that when you come over... You're straight away excited to see everything, in the same way that if I come over to America and go to New York, you know, I am, my mind is feasting on everything I can see. You know, oh look at that wonderful tenement building, um, in, in you know look look at that stair uh, fire escape. It's like the movies, I suppose, <laughs> it's same in same in reverse. Um, and sometimes yeah, you do take it for granted, and then other times. Again I guess it's just frame of mind sometimes something you're 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 in that frame of mind, ready to see ready to to um take in everything that you're looking at it's a, a prime example of that every time I go to Bosworth and again I've been there conservative guests thirty times at least, and every time I stop at the field where the real battle was was, was fought now. I'm not somebody who's naturally inclined to, you know, feel the atmosphere or, or, or um, you know, be able to mentally transport myself back in time like some people, some people can do when they walk in in historic buildings. I'm just not built that way. But I always stop on that field. I always spend a couple of minutes just looking across what is just a barren field. It could be a field same as. Millions of fields all around the world. That There's no real um, distinguishing features. It's just a field. But I cannot stop myself from, from stopping there every uh, a couple of minutes, every time I go there, just because I know what happened there. I, I just know this is a famous field. And you do sometimes see the cars going past, and you, they must be wondering, what is this guy doing? He's just standing, he- looking over a hedge. I
0: feel, I'm seeing it. There's a common theme here, Nathan. <laughs> 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 you standing and staring at things awkwardly, maybe.
1: <laughs> but but the, the funny thing about this is that it's, it's not, I mean, this is where you learn more about history. Um, it's, it's no longer, you know, if I go to London, I'm not interested in Westminster Abbey. I'm not interested in St. Paul's Cathedral. It could be some very, very small... Uh, piece of brickwork up some side alleyway that people just don't know it's there because you start to you know once you've ticked off all of the big things on your list and you've seen them multiple times you really start to scrape the barrel for the connections and I think that's where I am at the moment where I get more excited about these really small tenuous links um to the figures we're interested in than I would be over something you know, significant And that's where I take most joy in it. I really like trying to find these small Small links um, I'm currently Reading Nicola Tallis's book On Margaret Beaufort And I consider myself someone who knows Quite a lot of these Small, tenuous You know, windows or houses or, Of the various Tudors And I didn't realise that a couple of miles away From where my, my uh, parents-in-law Live in Cambridgeshire there's actually a church that's got a little bit of stained glass that's supposedly said to be Margaret Beauford. And I couldn't believe I didn't know this because how have I missed this when it's a couple of miles away from somewhere I go quite regularly. So I'm really excited to get back down there soon just to go see this little piece of stained glass. Um, but it's those kind of things now that are that are the exciting things for me
0: yeah I'm excited to read her book as well, but let's not forget you did write House of Beaufort, so you have a little bit of knowledge on this area, and it's been a pretty good selling book for you as well, hasn't it?
1: uh yes, done better than i than I expected um it's just about to go through another print run uh so, so the, the the print runs the publishers are putting through it is it's still selling out those print runs, so they keep on doing another one which is always a good problem to
0: have Um, but that's amazing and other than obviously you did a great job writing it but what what do you think it is that is drawing people to that topic
1: um this might sound like a negative but it's not meant to be it's the market at the moment is very saturated with books um when i first started coming into this period about 2010 so a decade ago it was very difficult to find information. Um the the two Henry the Seventh books I was able to get hold of at that point, uh of three. One was written in nineteen ninety-seven, one was written in nineteen eighty-five, and the other was written in nineteen seventy-one. Since that time, in the last ten years, I think there's been at least six or seven books on Henry the Seventh alone. Um and that has spread elsewhere. Richard the Third numerous books uh um, in numerous books, Elizabeth I, etc. And I think people there's like, obviously a market up there, but you start just as we as authors do, you start to spread out looking for more information about the people in these books. You know, I, I, I enjoy reading by Henry the Seventh, but I can't keep on reading multiple books on him in a row. You need to start looking around. Uh and that's pretty much I think the reader is the same as the author here in that they want to learn more about the background figures in all these books. Hence why we now have the Beauforts coming through, the Yorks coming through uh, later on, the Simos coming through, for example, with yourself, you know, people, you need to learn more about the figures around the central characters. You know, it puts everything into context. Nothing occurs in isolation. So you can't know Henry the Seventh without knowing the Beauforts. You can't know Henry the Eighth without knowing Henry the Seventh. Everything needs context. I think that's where the Beauforts have worked for me personally. That's where the Yorks are working for Matt Lewis. It's where you know the Cmos work for you. The Brandons work for um Sarah Bryson and so on
0: yeah it's you know one of the things that I think about um with the Beauforts is is that's correct me if I'm wrong, but I think everybody should know this is the Beaufort line is where Henry the gets the usurper title, isn't it
1: uh it is, yeah um I did recently listen to your podcast with Matt Lewis <laughs> and this is where we are gonna buck the trend. He's one hundred percent correct. In what he says about Henry Tudor, you know, one of the biggest usurpers in the history of 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 England uh, and then after Britain, you know, he is the usurper, um, and, and that is, you know, he, he took the throne by by power by conquest. Uh, if you want to go down the line of who had more or less right, I think there is a good argument for more people than him at the time having this so-called right to the throne. But the reality is he won it by conquest and also history. The kings really are, you know, yes, there's the whole idea of right and who's the rightful king, but they are just the most powerful men in that position at that particular time. Um, And right and Claim helped people get their mind around that back then, but it still did always come down to who was more powerful, going back to William the Conqueror and before that. So yes, Henry the Henry Seventh definitely is a usurper, and he was able to usurp that throne by using, or at least people being aware of, his Beaufort background.
0: So now that I know that you listened to the last podcast with Matthew Lewis, now I have to ask you the same question that I asked him was, you know, who was responsible for the princes in the tower? Did Richard kill him? Was Henry VII responsible? And we always have the, was it Margaret Beaufort? I'd love your take on it. Richard III. <laughs> That's
1: it. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the problem with this is that it's an unanswerable question. I'm asked this- First thing everybody needs to acknowledge coming to the subject. So when I say Richard III, and I'm claiming to be definitive, that's a wrong stance to take. Um, Same as anyone who is adamant with Margaret Beaufort, or Henry Tudor, or whoever, they are not giving the subject the respect it deserves, um, or history the respect it deserves, by not willing to at least acknowledge that we are not going to know. It's coming down to to a hunch based on everything you've read. And none of us are comprehensively read on the subject because there's so much parts of this history that are either unknowable or have yet to be discovered. Um, chronicles yet to be discovered or perhaps letters still in Certain archives that have yet to be discovered. So, with that in mind, if I was pressed for an answer, based on everything I've read, based on my ideas of the time, I would say Richard III was responsible, but I can't prove that any more than somebody can can disprove it. Um, it is just a hunch. I came across a quote couple of years ago from an eminent historian called gm trevelyan i think he was quite a really well-known historian in the early uh, 20th century and he prefaced one of his biographies with the quote history in fact is a matter of rough guessing from all the available facts and i think that sums the princes in the tower up very very well it is and has to remain a matter of rough guessing based on what we know. Um, you know, Matt's rough guess is that the princess survived. Um, I find that unlikely as he knows. Um, and, and to, to, to the contrary, I, from my rough guess, think Richard III was responsible, but it is still just all a rough guess based on what we know. And... Any, anyone who says they know the answer and it's this person, and everybody else is wrong. Sorry, but they're the ones who are who are, who are wrong in this. Or in, in this matter, at least until we have a definitive smoking gun, which we're not going to get.
0: Right. And you know, and there is something to be said that you know, for all we know, um, they died of natural causes, or one of them may have fled, which then leads me, of course, to the pretenders. Um, which is something that you um, are read, writing about right now.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I mean, just to just go back one step. I mean, with regards to the princes in the tower and them being killed, the one thing people often seem to not um, not look at is we're looking for these big masterminds: Margaret Beaufort, Richard III, Henry Tudor, uh, Buckingham. There would have been hundreds of men in london at that time who would have benefited from the prince's death and what i mean by that is if we take buckingham for example he would have been in charge of a household and that household at that time would have been the household of a duke if he became king then that household would have become a king's household more money more payments, more chances More opportunities No one's looked at the fact that Some unknown Servant, household officer Somebody whose name we will never know Took it upon themselves to do this In the hope that they would get their master A higher office So that they themselves would rise with him I think that is definitely a, a possibility um, you know we will do this, so our master becomes king, we get more money, more chances um that 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 certainly could have happened, so we're looking for this well known mastermind behind the case um no different to people who study Jack the Ripper who are looking for a if a, a policeman or a or a famous surgeon um you know or even Lewis Carroll, famous writers when the reality is it it almost likely would have been some unknown whose name we'll never know. And I think that's something that people don't look at with The Prince of the Tower. They're too keen to find the mastermind, the famous mastermind.
0: Is that what led to you and your most recent book? Uh,
1: Yes. I mean, the books that I've written so far have always been books that I want to read and no one's written them before. You know, I'm looking to to advance my own knowledge. And then you realise the book that you need is not there. You know, you can't buy it. It's not been written. So you start to look into the subject yourself and put together your own research, which, you know, luckily I am in a position to then be able to share with other people. People have written about The Pretenders before. There's been numerous books on Lambert Simnel, Perkin Warbeck. But never together, um, you know, their stories have been told in one book. And when the books have been written separately, they're taking away the context of Henry the VII's life and his involvement in this. You know, these books and these the, the stories of the pretenders are often from their viewpoint and with the big princes in the tower question above it. What was Henry up to at this time? how did their appearance affect henry's reign you know how did he battle them so i wanted to i wanted to know the story as much from henry's viewpoint as simnel and Warbeck's. so that's and without getting bogged down or distracted by the princes in the tower you know i obviously cover in my book whether or not i think they were the princes in the tower um uh, but that's not really that's not really the point of the book. The book is to cover the 15-year period from 1483 to 1500 and just writing about what happened and how each principal character in this story, including Henry VII, how they actually um, lived those years because it was a fascinating time, a tumultuous time there were... Repeated invasions of England. There was a lot of foreign, um, foreign enemies of England maneuvering around. There were, you know, marriage treaties made, broken. Uh, and there was a, 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 two battles on English soil after Bosworth. And it all has to be again wrapped into the context of one continuous stretch of time, not just. Uh, this is Bosworth that finished. This is now Simnel, that finished, and this is now Warbeck that finished. They've always been written as separate books, so I'm looking to put it all together and hopefully I created something that would be of interest anyway.
0: You know, it's it's such a fascinating time in in English history, and I've always wondered. Um, what it was like for Elizabeth of York during that time, you know, it was such a, such a tough beginning part of a reign for the first Tudor king. And, you know, people always talk about how Henry was, he was so paranoid. And I want to look at, you know, his wife at Elizabeth. And I always wonder, you know, I wonder what she thought during this time when Perkin Warbeck was claiming to be her brother. Like, those are the things that I think about so often.
1: I mean, we're back to the age-old problem of we just don't have enough information to know what her voice was. So we're back to rough guessing. Um, The problem here with Elizabeth is that all of our answers are going to be tinged with our own bias. So if you're somebody who thinks relatively positively about Henry VII, like I do, you're almost looking for Elizabeth to be, you know, on Henry's side or, you know, you you try and dismiss the worries and so on. Everybody's biased and nobody can help those feelings. Um, Similar, if you are a very uh, anti-Henry VII person, you know, perhaps more pro-Richard, then you're also then going to be looking at you know, Elizabeth's been written out of history by Henry uh, and so on. And the truth is, we just, either way, we just don't know. We know nothing about her her thoughts on this process, so we can only speculate. Um, it, you know, from for, for my understanding of things and my reading of things is, I think she... Must have accepted that her brothers died in 1483. Now whether she deep, deep down believed that, I don't think she knew that because not many people seem to have known what really happened. That was that, that enabled her to just get on with life. Yes, there's somebody claiming to be Perkin Warbeck, but Henry agents and Henry spies. Uh, certainly had convincing evidence that he was nothing other than a than a fraud. If she just bought into that, you know, she's been married by that point uh, for five or six years. She's got several children. You know, she is as Tudor by that point as any of them. Her entire future is wrapped up in Henry's survival for her children. So if we break it down to her just accepting her brothers are dead and this is now her family, then there's no reason for her to have spoken out, for her to have been concerned, um, and so on. I mean, we've got to remember that Elizabeth, there's no real reason why Elizabeth, yes, the princes in the tower were her brothers by blood, obviously, and she would have known them, but she would not have been closer to them necessarily than she would have been to her own children, and that she may not have known them that well, her brothers. You know, she would have spent different times at different households growing up. Uh, she was older than them. So if we take it that she accepted that they died in 1483, there's nothing for her to worry about. Um, and that's ultimately, I think, my reading of the entire situation. Uh, she, she doesn't act out in any way. Um, we do have some letters of her that survived. So, you know, she's not completely voiceless. Again, there's nothing that contradicts the official, the official line that they were frauds, and yes, the impulse is always to look for reasons and try to be cynical about why this is. But sometimes the boring answer is the answer, and that's the difficulty with history. Sometimes is that we're always looking for the controversy, we're always looking for the conspiracy, you know, the intrigue. Everything needs to be explained. Uh, and sometimes perhaps the, the simple answer is, is the right one.
0: Okay, so now I have a good, a good one for you here. Why, why do you think everybody wants to call Henry VII a miser?
1: Because they don't know their history.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, same,
1: why people call Richard III, you know, a, a, an evil monster, because simple history through the ages has lasted. Um, You know, it's myth-building. I know we always get this idea that the Tudors have completely blackened Richard's name, so everything they've said about Richard is is a lie. Um, I I think certainly lots of aspects have been exaggerated, but the counter-argument almost always goes that by comparison, Everything about Henry the Seventh that's lasted wasn't rewritten after his death. Uh, and that that's nonsense. It it clearly has been, you know, he has also been misrepresented across time. Uh and the miser aspect is one of them. Um you know, Henry the Seventh certainly wasn't miserly. Uh he was avaricious. You know, he definitely accumulated money, unlike any king of England before him. And he certainly got greedy in the last decade of his reign. But greed and miserness are two completely different, different qualities. And what I mean by that is Henry accumulated as much money as he could. And when you put that into the context of the time, which again is a key aspect of my book and the threats he was facing, it's completely and utterly understandable why he acted as he did. Everything can be explained. Again, nothing happens without context or you know in a vacuum. So he, he tried to get as much money as he could for the security of his crown and his family. He or his men under him, Empson and Dudley, went to great lengths to accumulate that money and it made him unpopular at the end of his reign. But he was still spending vast Amounts of money. He never stopped spending. And almost all of the money that came into the treasury, just as much of it, um, went out. You know, Henry loved to spend money on, on jewelry. He loved to spend money on gold. Uh, he had so many payments of him just offering money to people for strawberries, for, uh, singing him songs, for reading him poetry. He built Richmond Palace, which at that time in England was possibly the grandest palace ever ever built. Uh anyone who's been to Westminster Abbey and has seen where he's been buried, that is not the action of a miser. Uh, a miser is Ebenezer Scrooge. The one thing Henry the Seventh was not was a Scrooge in the way that he kept his money and wouldn't spend a penny. So the miser thing is just wrong. It, um, it needs to be dismissed. It needs to be uh, gotten rid of. And um, the frustrating thing for me is seeing Ricardians leveling these accusations at Henry the Seventh without the self-awareness that the thing that's drawn them to the study of Richard the Third is the same lies put up, you know, against him. You can't almost have it both ways. You need to. Uh, sometimes be fair to both sides in this. And, you know, I'm sure that's the same across history um, and even across the reign of the Tudors with other aspects. I mean, I'm not too hot myself on the whole Anne Boleyn topic, but I'm sure she has her, her lovers and her haters, some who are perhaps more pro Catherine Aragon and so on. And it's something you need to be. If you are trying to create an argument For the person that you For lack of a better word like Then you can't then use The same tactics That are being used against you Against the other topic um, And that's That's it really with regards to the miser thing I think people need to Put that to the side and if you're going to use The word against Henry VII It's going to be avaricious At least get the word right
0: <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that because that's one that I often hear. It's similar to how everybody always says Thomas Seymour was a cad, and maybe not that similar, not, kind of. Um, but it always gets me worked up. I mean, like uh, that, a great. We live in an age at the moment that's very
1: anti-expertism. Um, you know, the experts don't know everything; we know better, and um, that's almost. In general, never true. You know, people who have studied something their entire lives will simply know more. Um, and, you know, and what we've got at the moment is the University of Winchester over the last five or six years have put together um, something they call the Tudor Chamber Books. So they've been going through, led by Dr. Sean Cunningham, who for me is probably the greatest. Him and Dr. Stephen Gunn are probably the greatest experts at the moment on Henry VII's living. Uh, together with Dr. James Ross, uh, Dr. Samantha Harper, you know, you know, the, the great academic experts on the Tudors and Henry VII. They've put together this, uh, analysis of all of the chamber books of Henry VII. So everything that was spent from his personal privy purse, um was, was written down in these accounts and they've gone through them and I think they're gonna be releasing a lot of their findings next year. And what's interesting for me is that having spoken to almost all of them, they've come away with quite positive thoughts on Henry the You know, they've really got down to the the real nitty gritty of his reign, um, of the man himself from the payments he's making on a day to day basis. And generally speaking, they've come away with a positive outlook of the man based on who he was paying money to, why he was paying money to them, and so on. And I think it's very easy to just dismiss all these experts, you know, as, oh, well, you know, they would say that, or, or, you know, just because they've studied it for 20 years doesn't mean they they know more. When yes, I I think they generally do. And I think it's important not to just dismiss the, the viewpoint sometimes of people who aren't just doing this as a side hobby, but are doing this as a profession day in, day out. And I think the Tudor Books, um, the Tudor Books project, which, you know, obviously I'm interested in the Henry VII part, but I think they're doing Henry VIII as well, up to 1520, is going to be a game changer. But only if people are willing to read that and be prepared to change their The outlook on something you know, To to, to truly educate themselves On a subject Which unfortunately some people are willing To do that, some people aren't They're happy to live in their In their biased Preconception of a topic Mm -hmm. For example calling Thomas Seymour A cad without studying The actual Man, the history and so on I mean you're going to know a lot more About him than I am So I'm not going to sit here and make a, a, a Judgement on somebody, I just don't know that well.
0: Right, right. These tutor books, man, I am looking forward to them because you can really tell a lot about a person by what they spend their money on. I mean, I'll
1: give you one example. Uh, this idea has come down from history that Henry the Seventh hated the Welsh, He hated his Welsh background, um, and so on. Which, again, in my opinion, is complete and utter nonsense. Uh, I appreciate I have. Uh, subconscious bias in that i don't want it to be true, so you always are looking for reasons to to make it true, same as everybody else studying history. They come with a preconceived bias, and that's not possible to to rid ourselves of but in the in 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 his account books, there's regular payments that he's made to Welsh singers Welsh harpists. And in particular, on St. David's Day, every March, he's made payments to the Welshmen in his employ so that they could have a feast to celebrate St. David's Day. The first English king we know of who's done that. Now, to me, that reads a man wanting to treat his men with money from his personal account to celebrate the patron saint of Wales' feast day. You know, that that, that reads to me eight. If you're a miser, you're not giving money to a bunch of servants to go and get drunk, um, you know. And also, wh- why? There's no reason. If there's no precedent, should we say, for him to do that? Richard the Third didn't, as far as we know, didn't give money to the Welshmen for St David's Day. Edward the Fourth didn't. Henry the did didn't. But Henry the chose to do that. And I take that as an inference. Based on this actual, uh, tangible piece of evidence to suggest that he probably did have at least some sympathy with the Welsh background and f- wanted to reward the Welshman in his employ. Um, but again, you know, if you're not going to read the, the chamber book, you're not going to analyse them and you're not even willing to try and learn more to change your viewpoint on something, then it's it's almost, you know, what's the point, but what's the end game in this?
0: You definitely have some vast knowledge when it comes to Henry VII, and I so appreciate you being on the show today. And um, one of the things I'd like to do at the end of every episode is ask you a couple of questions. And the first one I want to ask you, Nathan, is what is one thing that the listeners might be surprised to know about you? Ha <laughs>
1: Um I I suppose the obvious one is gonna be if anyone seen in a picture of me, uh I am mixed race. And um, the reason I say that is because it's quite hard to find other people writing about the Tudors who are who, who are you know, of colour. So I suppose that really makes me stand out sometimes. Um the fact as well as I am from South Wales and from a working class background. So I tend to think I'm quite unusual in this world at the moment. There's not many people who look or sound like me out there writing about the Tudors. Um but if that gives me um you know, a slight uh interest to other people, then brilliant. Bring it on.
0: And I think um I saw that you are on the list to be at the next TudorCon.
1: Uh I am, that's the plan, yes um, I've always been jealous of these bigger name historians Who get these gigs in in the US And I don't think I've quite come head around it at the moment Because it kind of is one of the last things on my author bucket list um, So I, yes, I think if I stop and think that I, I'm going to America to give a talk I think my mind might explode
0: <laughs> I love it <laughs> well my, my last question um for you is if I were to give you a time machine Nathan and you could safely return where and when would you choose to go back to
1: now I'm very very happy that I listened to your podcast with Matt Lewis before this because if you would ask me this out of the blue I would have had a mind blank Um, and I I think Matt actually when The obvious answer is always the prince in the tower. And to try and give an answer that is not obvious. So the one I'm going to give is going to be September 1484. And it's going to be in Brittany. Because what happened at that point was Henry VII, or Henry II at the time, had been in exile for 13 years. And he was at the Breton Court while Switzerland III was on the throne. And Richard III was trying to get Henry captured and brought back to England. One would probably assume, I think, you know, fairly, that he would have been put to death. know, he was this random potential Lancastrian exile who was a threat to Richard III, or a threat to any Yorkist king. Uh, Edward IV had tried for years to get hold of Henry and had failed. So Henry was in, in Brittany. Um, and word reached Bishop John Morton in England that Richard had entered secret negotiations with the Bretons to hand over Henry to almost certain death. And somehow Bishop John Morton got, uh, he managed to send word to Henry through a spy telling him of his da- of his danger. And this is where I'd like to come in with my time machine, <laughs> um, is that. What Henry did at this point was he's just been told by this spy, "You're about to be captured, mate, and you're about to be, to be killed. What are you going to do?" And he grabbed five of his most trusted men he had with him at that time, so Henry was in exile with around five hundred men. He grabbed five of them and told uh, the Bretons he was off to meet one of his friends in the nearby countryside. You know he's going with five people. there's no real reason to doubt. Why he would do that, especially when he's got his other you know four hundred and ninety five men back uh, in the court, but Henry, after about five miles of riding off to meet this imaginary friend, suddenly got off his horse, went into the forest, and put on um, the clothes of a servant and then what he did was he he rode with his five men straight for the French border, so at this time France and Brittany were two different countries um or, or rather Brittany was an independent duchy um, separate to France and he rode for the French border determined to try and seek refuge in France now the Bretons had found out about this or they'd rather found out that something was up so they sent out a, a, a hunting party in pursuit of Henry and what we've got here is some chase through the Breton forests of Henry and his five men literally riding for their lives pursued by the Bretons, a, a Breton force who would be sent out to capture them so he could be taken back to England and almost certainly put to death. And I, I would have loved to have been on that. I mean, it sounds scary. You said that you can guarantee my safety uh, with this time machine. But it would have been, you know, just the sheer panic of of this chase. You know, it's almost something you can picture in the movies, happening, you know, it's, it's a very Hollywood-type scene through the night, through the forests, but then the ac- exhilaration and the happiness when he finally crossed that French border and he realised that you're safe. um Because the, the chronicles tell us that Henry only made it across the French border with an hour to spare, so he he got there just one hour ahead of his captors. And according to Polydor Virgil, he was wondrous glad to have been in France, and once in France, as we know ultimately um, history was written when he finally got hold of an army and was able to invade successfully England, so it's basically that that horse chase, that very Hollywood type chase in the woods, pursued by your enemies riding literally for your life
0: Thank you for that unique answer
1: (laughs) I think no one (laughs) can ever answer that
0: Question. (laughs) Um, So, your new book is going to be. Can you tell everybody what the title of it is and when um, they can expect to start pre ordering?
1: Yeah, the title, as things stand, uh, we never say never when it comes to publishing, but the title is Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders, Warbeck, or rather Simnel, Warbeck, and Warwick. And It has been submitted now to the publisher as of two weeks ago. So it should be on bookshelves, uh, real or virtual, next year in the summer at some time. But don't worry, I will be very, I'll be promoting it quite a lot in the coming months. So you should see it pop up all over your social medias.
0: And once it comes out, I'll have to have you back on the show again.
1: Yes, definitely. Yes. Um, yeah, I've talked for a couple of years about the Beauforts now, and I think it's time to uh, give some of the other principal characters some love. I
0: think that's great. Nathan, where can everybody find you? What's your website, Facebook, Amazon, all that stuff?
1: Uh, my website is Um I always say I spelled my first name Nathan a little bit weird. There's an E in it. So... Keep an eye on that. Uh, so NathanAmeen.com, Com, and then I'm on Twitter at NathanAmeen, and on my Facebook I am Nathan Amin, author. Just in case anyone was a bit unsure about what it is I actually do.
0: <laughs> and don't forget though, you also have the Henry Tudor Society.
1: Uh, yes, I do. I run the Henry Tudor um, Society Facebook page. So if you are over there and you post anything, I will be the person who will pick that up.
0: And of course, we want people to go out and buy all of your books. So not only did you have the House of Beaufort, what were the other titles that you have?
1: Uh, I've written two guidebooks. So the first is Tudor Wales. So it's essentially a guide of 40 places in Wales that are connected in some way to the Tudor dynasty. And I'm quite passionate really about people getting into Wales to view all of these things, because Tudor England gets all of the glory, they get all of the tourists, and there are some real hidden gems just a couple of hours away in Wales that people often overlook. So definitely, if you are coming over from America, or you live in England, do come into Wales and check out what we've got. And the other book is titled York Pubs, and I will let you guess what that one's about. (laughs)
0: It will be the guide of where to drink all of the beer. In York. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Nathan, thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: No problem. Thank you very much.
0: And that concludes this episode of the Tudors Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can find my show notes from this episode and how to become a patron at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. Don't want to miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Patreon, or Podbean. Intro and outro music called Folk Round by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com. Creative Commons license via Filmmusic.io. Thanks for
1: checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TutorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.